Okay, Eula. So if you think about all of the different terms that we've learned making this podcast, terms for sexist behaviors or biased patterns in the workplace, what is one term that stands out to you? So for me, one is the glass cliff. You know, I just watched Theresa May give her resignation. And the idea of her going into that job, you know, something that she probably dreamed about her whole life as something that she, like a goal she wanted to have. Sure. But then also having the full understanding that this job is something that is like impossible at this moment. Yes. And so the filler could be anyone. And so they're like, we'll just throw a lady on the cliff. Oh, because she's not going to solve that problem because nobody can. No, no, nobody can. How about you? Anything that you're thinking of the terms? I mean, I've been thinking a lot about office housework lately. Yeah. Uh, Particularly because like just I think it was yesterday I was in a studio and there was a half empty glass of iced tea in there. Mm. And I argued with myself about whether I should pick it up or not. Like, should I go put it in the sink? No. (laughs) It's not your job. Right. I know. To be clear, I did not clean up. Good. So it is not my job. But you and I wanted to share this podcast episode from another series because it introduced us to a term that really stuck with us. Mm-hmm. This term, empathy. I'm going to look at the definition real quick. Okay. Okay. Here it is. Yeah. It's the inappropriate and disproportionate sympathy powerful men often enjoy in cases of sexual assault, intimate partner violence, homicide, and other misogynistic behaviors. Oof. Wow. Yeah. The disproportionate sympathy powerful men often enjoy. Yeah, that stuck with me too. I mean, you could argue that Brett Kavanaugh received empathy, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Or R. Kelly has benefited from empathy over years, like oh. for a, like millennium. He's not that old. Don't give him that much credit. For decades, though. Girl. I mean, these are two men who have had lots of power in their careers. That's where their power comes from. But that's not the only kind of power men can hold, right? This podcast episode looks at the power a man can hold among a group of close friends. It's from this show called Seen on Radio, and they did a whole amazing series about masculinity. It's called Men. And basically, the series explores the roots of all the gender bias and workplace sexism we talk about on our show. Mm-hmm. And this episode brought up a lot of thoughts for me, and I know it did for you too, Jeannie. Yeah. So we'd love to hear from you guys after you get a chance to listen. So here's Hempathy from Seen on Radio. Um, <clears throat> Matthew and I met in our senior year of high school. And basically he was just a really different kind of a guy. He was he had this amazing sense of humor. We hit it off right away, we became best buds. This is Janie Williams. She's 38. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two-year-old son. She has a story to tell about her former friend, Matthew. The story begins in the late 1990s. We were really, really close, and as happens sometimes, um, that kind of led to some more romantic feelings on his side that I didn't necessarily reciprocate, and um, that put a strain on our friendship, but we continued on. Eventually, Janie says, Matthew gave her an ultimatum. If she wouldn't date him, he would end the friendship. And I foolishly (laughs) agreed to enter a relationship um, under those terms. I was 20, and I just didn't want to let him go um, because I I cared for him. I loved him as a friend. So we did that for a couple months, and it didn't work out. He really did not take that breakup well at all. He really lost it. He... um, just started acting really crazy, kind of being abusive to me with words and sometimes even 
slight physical altercations as well spring water in my face <laughs> but hard or or like pinching me too hard <laughs> or you know it nothing like uh, you know extreme violence but just these weird little reminders that he was angry the worst was yet to come matthew would eventually punish janie much more severely for her crime i broke up with him <laughs> I didn't reciprocate his romantic feelings. This isn't just another story about a dangerous, misogynistic man, or about sexual violence and how it goes down. It's really about what happens afterwards. Hearing that, you might think, ah, okay, it's another story about the system, police and the courts, employers and the media, and how they disbelieve and blame women for the things men do to them. But no, Janie's story isn't about that either. Her story never got to the system. Janie became intensely interested in what happened with the people closest to her, her best friends, even her mother. She decided to explore that, almost as an investigative reporter would. What they remember and how they responded, or didn't, when Janie told them what Matthew had done to her. From the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and PRX, it's seen on radio, Part seven of our series, Men. We're taking a season-long look at sexism, misogyny, how patriarchy really works, and how we can all get better at seeing it so we can take it apart. I'm John Bewin. And I'm Celeste Headley. This time, Janie's story, and the phenomenon that the philosopher Kate Mann has dubbed himpathy. The kind of sympathy that's applied exclusively to males, not to mention impunity. The striking, damaging, and downright weird habit in our culture of letting men off the hook for the awful things they do, even serious crimes, especially if they do those things to women. As we'll hear, empathy is not just something men do. Kate Mann argues it's a deeply embedded habit of mind, one that seems so natural for many of us, of all genders, that we don't even know we're doing it. We need to see the habit before we can break it. So let's start with Janie Williams and what happened to her 15 years ago. It's important to understand that Janie and Matthew were part of a tight group of friends, young adults knocking around L.A. Janie's best friends were also Matthew's good friends. Janie's mother was friends with Matthew's mother. Remember that. So what happened? It's 2003, about two years after they dated briefly and Janie broke up with Matthew. She's been away at college, but now she's back, and they still see each other sometimes when their gang of friends gets together. Janie's friends would later say that Matthew was still obsessed with Janie in 2003. In Janie's words, he was still making it clear he was heartbroken. And he had been acting in ways that were were scary and unhealthy leading up to that night. And then... um. We went out with a couple friends to a bar, and he got me a drink, um, and I drank that drink, and immediately felt sick, went to the bathroom and threw up violently. And then when I came out, he was there and offered to take me back to his place, which is where I had parked my car. We'd come together. So um, we went back, and he helped me to lie down on the couch. Um, 
I did notice that he was pacing back and forth in the living room, which was strange. Um, And I, at that point, was conscious, but uh, woozy, um, like not in control, like not, my body was weak and not fully functional. At some point, he said I should get some rest in his bed, and he helped me get there. And then he left the room, but then he returned, and um, he proceeded to sexually molest me. He took off my clothes, and um, his mouth, tongue, hands, fingers were everywhere. And while he was doing this, he was saying, we will never be friends over and over again. He just kept repeating that. And I was saying no and stop um, over and over again. And um, he kept on. At some point, I was able to regain enough control of my body to um, push my way up get dressed, go to the door. And I remember he followed me there and said, no, wait, I'm so sorry. Um, Don't go. And I said, no, that's really fucked up. And I um, took the chain off the door and went to my car. It would take years and lots of therapy for Janie to fully grasp the impact of Matthew's attack on her. That's not unusual for people who face trauma, regardless of gender. So at first, she didn't tell anyone what he'd done. Not the police, not anyone. That would have made it real, she says. At the same time, she didn't want to see Matthew's face. That was another wish he did not respect. And in fact, the night after the assault, he came to where he knew I would be. And when I saw him there, Um, I went to him and told him to leave, and he smiled and said, no, you leave. It was clear to me at that point that he was exerting power through that move and that I didn't really have another choice. I I had to leave. (laughs) So I did. I left. In fact, Janie soon left Los Angeles. She moved to San Francisco, then to Colombia, then to Germany. She stayed away most of the time for about 10 years. She says she couldn't see a place for herself in her hometown, not after what Matthew had done, and given that her friends were his friends. For the first few years, she wasn't prepared to tell anyone what he'd done. Why not? This question comes up again and again when women accuse men of sexual assault years after the fact. Yeah, we seem to understand why it can take decades for a man to accuse someone like a teacher or a priest who abused him, but not why women don't immediately report sexual assault. So why don't women talk about it, at least with their friends and family, right away? Before we get to everything that's coming in this story, Janie wants you to understand this. Besides just not wanting to face what she'd gone through and hoping it would go away, she says... She also had an impulse to protect him. Despite what Matthew had done to her, she didn't want him hurt. I cared for Matthew. He had been kind of a lonely person before 
I'd brought him into this group of friends. I knew how important they were to him. They were to me as well. Um, we were really kind of like family. And I didn't want to take that away from him. Um, I didn't want him to lose those friends. Then, <laughs> on another level, I really, somewhere inside of me, I knew that if I told my friends uh, what he did, he wouldn't lose them, that they would kind of excuse his behavior, ignore what I said, or find some way to justify it, and then I would end up losing them in a really painful way. I think it's this unspoken, unconscious knowledge that I think we all have um, as women about how, how the rules work. <laughs> and the rules have been that there are no repercussions. <laughs> Janie's hunch about the rules would be confirmed. She moved back to L.A. in 2006, and the next year she worked up the courage and told a few of her closest friends what Matthew had done, that he molested her that night in 2003 and probably drugged her first, probably put a roofie, a date-rape drug, in that drink he gave her, though she could never be absolutely sure about that. Her friends listened. They expressed concern and empathy. They did not confront Matthew. Their friendships with him were unaffected. So Janie left again, went on with her life overseas. Then in 2012, back in L.A. again, she felt stronger and newly frustrated with the lack of accountability Matthew had faced. So she wrote the story of that night in 2003 in detail and posted it on Facebook. She named Matthew and tagged all of her friends, women and men, who knew him. Most of my closest friends did not have a response. They didn't respond to me. They didn't reach out to me or, or respond in any way, shape, or form to me. Um, I later found out that they did reach out to Matthew, some of them, um, to make sure he was okay and to ask him how he felt about um, the Facebook post. And one of my close friends even assured him that she was still his friend. A few years after that, in 2015, Janie was talking with one of her good friends, Nicole. Matthew's name came up. Janie alluded to the fact that he'd sexually molested her all those years before, a fact Janie had disclosed to Nicole more than once in a direct conversation in 2007 and then in that Facebook post five years later. And she said... Yeah, well, but he didn't really do anything, did he? And it kind of blew me away. This was all before our current Me Too moment broke open. But Janie was convinced there was something important going on. What did it mean that her friends just seemed unwilling or unable to face what she was telling them? that one of their friends had done something inexcusable, something criminal, to another good friend. Not only were they not shunning Matthew, they hadn't even really challenged him about what he'd done. What was going on? I had this 
idea to ask them, <laughs> to ask all of them. And I thought, well, maybe their answers will mean more, you know, will have implications for more than just my story. Maybe other people want to hear this. So um, I got a really dinky <laughs> Sony tape recorder. It was like 50 bucks. I had no idea what I was doing. And I just, I asked them and I recorded what they had to say. Janie recorded many hours of her conversations with her friends and with her mother. Janie takes it from here with a small sample of those interviews. Then we'll hear from Kate Mann and talk more on the backside. I don't, because I feel like, honestly, Janie, if I remember you telling me that... This is Nicole, one of my very best friends. Um, Here, I was asking her about the first time I told her the story in 2007, what she remembered. When you were talking to me, you're very unsure of the whole situation in the first place. Well, I wasn't unsure of what happened. I was I was not sure that I'd been roofied because there's no way to prove it. Yeah. Well, what I was sure of was the facts. And the facts were that we went to this bar together. Mm-hmm. He got me the drink. Mm-hmm. I drank the drink. I go over the story again with details of what happened that night. Then we go back to discussing what I told her in 2007. I think it's possible that what I told you was that he molested me. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's possible that I didn't tell you that he molested me because the story wouldn't make any sense if... I mean, it's definitely a possibility that you did say molestation. I don't... You definitely didn't say, like, what exactly Exactly that entailed. Yeah. I think I said he molested me. This is what I, I'm pretty sure this is what I said. I think I said he molested me mm-hmm. while saying over and over again, we will never be friends. friends. Yeah, I can see. I don't remember that part, but yeah, I can definitely see you saying that. And that's probably like the molestation part of it is what is iffy in general, I feel like. So your mind is like, well, what does that really mean? And yeah, I know for a fact you didn't elaborate on what that meant. I probably didn't. Yeah. I probably didn't. And I don't blame you. Want to go hard. into details yeah. about it, but yeah. Um, I thought I thought molestation meant something. Well, it does bad for sure. Yeah. So, so you, you think that's possible that I possible said that for sure? Yeah. Um, I feel like it was. I mean, I don't know if. I guess. The way it was told to me, too, I feel like just because you were unsure about a lot of things, I feel like maybe that's why I was like, well, maybe she's not sure of all this stuff that's happening. Because if she was roofied, like, what, you I know? was un- I was completely sure of everything I just told you. Yeah. I could, I can, I can never be 100% sure that he actually was the one who slipped something in my drink. Of course, yeah. But obviously, However, yeah. It does look that way. Of course, yeah. Um, What Nicole remembered and focused on was the part of my story I wasn't sure about, whether Matthew had drugged me. She clung to that ambiguity and extended that doubt to the part of the story I was sure about, the details of the sexual assault, stalking, and abuse. My friend Anthony, who's also good friends with Matthew, read my Facebook post, He says he struggled to square the story I told him with what he'd heard in a short conversation with Matthew. I think that he basically felt that you felt something happened that he didn't feel happened. Like, I guess you felt that there was, like, 
your interpretation of the situation was not accurate of where his his motive like where he was coming from per se i think he felt like maybe misunderstood about how the night went down did you believe what i was saying was true i i believed that you certainly had every right to believe what you believed based on all the facts you're laying on the table the one thing that I guess that I will always was like a little uncertain about is just the uh, sort of intentional um, drugging, I guess. That was always the one thing that like was like, ah, I don't know, like that's a tough one for me. Take notice of how my friends want to give Matthew the benefit of the doubt. Their reluctance to believe he could do something terrible to me. I didn't say it then, but I was thinking, not only do you guys know me, And no, I would never lie. But you also know Matthew. They do. All my friends have seen him in action many, many times. I mean, he's just out of control. Like, drunk, out of control, getting naked, you know, doing inappropriate things. He's just crazy and wild. You know, has no filter, doesn't know boundaries. A little sleazy, always. Uh, I think at Malia's, he had, like, was sitting on a table, pulled his pants down, and was just like sitting on this table or something. You know, he'd grab me and like, like have his lips on my ear. Um, but he, I would see him do it to a lot of people. He would just bite. It's just like, who, who reacts like that? Who just bites? Sometimes with a girl that he might have just met too. So I had a coworker who worked with Matthew. Um, he basically sexually harasses like all the employees there. And it hurt friends of mine. My roommate, you know, refused to have him in the house anymore after he groped her. And so it was just like situations like that that he constantly overstepped the boundaries, you know, and we'd have a term for it. It's just like, okay, Matthew's getting creepy, let's go. And I was constantly offering excuses. Sort of a like determined obliviousness. So this is the person my friends had such a hard time believing could do what he did to me. From the outside looking in, it might seem impossible, make no sense at all. But I want to dive in to try to understand why, how, so many people turned a blind eye to it all. We'll hear more of Janie's conversations in a minute. But Celeste, it seems important to think about why Janie's friends were reluctant to confront Matthew once they'd heard what he did to Janie. Or for that matter, why did they put up with all this over-the-top creepiness that we've just heard them describe? Right, for the very beginning. I mean, in many cases that make headlines, like the ones we're seeing with the Me Too movement, the people who fail to hold men accountable do so because... There's something they believe they're getting from this man, right? Something important, a TV or radio network that lets the guy run roughshod over the women he's working with because he gets good ratings. Or the CEO, who is seen as irreplaceable by the board and the shareholders because they're making money. That's not really the case with Matthew because the stakes aren't that tangible. They're not that big. So why would people let this guy off the hook? I asked Janie to reflect on that. She says a relationship with Matthew was hard to give up. A lot of what the interviewees said, my friends, said that he kind of made them 
go out and experience the world in a different way, to really be at the center of things, um, to be the life of the party. He was also really, really funny and um, knew all the cool things to do in town and would make sure everyone was getting on board to go and do those things. It was fun to be friends with him. Yeah, it was fun to be friends with him. Janie said the other thing that came through from her friends was that confronting Matthew as a sexual predator, really confronting him, would have just been hard, awkward. People didn't know how to do that, nor did they want to do that. They didn't want that kind of awkwardness and drama in their lives. They wanted to just keep having fun. Okay, so let's get back to Janie. We'll listen in now on a couple longer excerpts from some especially revealing conversations that she recorded. This is part of a conversation I had with my friend Veronica. We were talking about the first time I told her, a few years before, that Matt had molested me. For her birthday that year, she was getting a bunch of people together at the Hollywood Bowl. I told her I wasn't going if Matthew was going to be there and that I'd been going to therapy and had fully come to grips with what he did to me. This was the first time I told her directly what happened. I believed you. No, there was no doubt that he wouldn't do that. Did you feel like knowing that that happened put you in a difficult position? Oh, definitely. I think at that point you were going through a lot and you were just facing it, that you you did put ultimatums. You know, you put an ultimatum that night. You said, if you're going to hang out with me, then I don't hang out with him. You know, and it was during the time that Angel, like, you know, we were planning the Hollywood Bowl thing. And to me, it was just like, what do, what do you do now? It's like, do you disinvite? Do you do this? Do you do that? So it was it was awkward in that sense of like, what do you do with this information now? So what did you when I when I gave you that ultimatum? What did you say? I don't know if I said anything. Did I say something? I don't know if I said anything. What happened with the Hollywood Bowl thing? Did he go? Mm-hmm. Did I go? No. No, he didn't go. What do you what do you imagine I would have felt about that? Horrible. Here you are, you're the, you're sharing the news that this guy is a monster pretty much. But you you're the one that's been isolated and and out. Of course, you know, you felt like, you know, like everyone's taking his side, but it wasn't about taking sides, and I hope you don't see it that way. No one was taking sides. You know, it's just like here's a bomb of information that, you know, it happened to you. And, you know, it's just like we're all seeing how crazy he is, but he's making an effort to not be excluded whatsoever. It wasn't, people weren't including him. It, it wasn't like that. It was just, he made the effort to like not be excluded and not be a pariah. You however, you were just like, I can't be near him or even see him. So I'm gonna remove myself completely from the situation. You know, but I don't think people stopped talking to you. You and I kept talking. You and I kept hanging out outside of that situation. 
you know? But Matt was still being invited everywhere. Or was the source of doing everything. So he was still at the center of the social group. You have to also understand, it, it was very awkward for everybody. This is something that had happened. And then the, the bomb is dropped, and it's just like, this is what happens. And you're just like, fuck. Like, okay. Like, the, someone that is considered a friend and part of the social group is this fucking weirdo. And you're just like, what do you do with this information? And then you leave. So it's it, there was never avoiding it. It was never like, oh, he's here, I'm leaving. So, okay, so if Matthew shows up, I can't be, like, going up to him in public and saying you're a fucking rapist to people. Like, I, I'm just going to play devil's advocate right. here. Why not? Because you're not here anymore. You left. Yeah, but remember, I left after I told you. Yeah. And Matthew was the one to come to... Your gathering the, Hollywood the Hollywood Bowl because he had already bought a ticket, but it's just like Matt. So what do I say? So you, what do I say, Janie? I say Matthew's no longer invited because he's a rapist. That's not that I can't share that information unless you have told everybody about it. That news, that information wasn't mine to spread. I'm not like that. I don't like gossiping. At that point, it's just like, what do I do other than wanting to slap him? You know. It's like, I can't avoid you because we run with the same group of friends, but we're not huggy, lovey, dovey, dovey friends, you know? It's just like, in the minute you get awkward with me, I just smack him away. That's all I could have done at that time. I understand what you're saying about why you reacted the way you do, but I'm just hoping you can understand because of the reaction my answer was no i don't have a home here and i don't have i i I can't i can't exist here i can't my best friends were still hanging out with the person who did that to me knowing it and i had no place here because of it there is a lot going on in this conversation with veronica But for now, let's stick with the answers she is providing about why she reacted the way she did. What I understood her to be saying was that it wasn't her place to say anything about it or do anything about it. It didn't happen to her, which made it not her business and perhaps not her problem. It would have been awkward to address and she didn't want to create drama. She didn't feel comfortable talking about it with anyone because, essentially, she felt it wasn't her place. I also decided to talk to my mother about her reactions and how my coming out with the story of what happened affected her. In this exchange, the woman she is referring to, Diane, is Matthew's mother. They'd been friends. Do you remember when you did find out about what had happened? Did, do you remember talking about it at all with me? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember what I said, but, you know, like, I'm sorry, so sorry that you had to go through that. And I said, and now, you know, I can sure see why you didn't want me having discussions with Diane about him. And I, by that time, I was not um, doing things with Diane. I was just fielding her calls. Did you still talk to her after that? Mm Mm-hmm. I know I was still talking to her because 
I thought, every time she brought up Matthew, I thought, she must wonder why I don't follow through. You know, she'll say, Matthew's doing so good, and I would say, great. And then I would, you know, say I'm busy or something, because I thought I just couldn't have a conversation with her about Matthew. I wasn't, it wasn't my job to tell her, but I wasn't going to have a conversation. Why, Why wasn't it? To tell her that her son assaulted my daughter. I don't know. I, I Well, no, I just, I don't think it was Matthew's grown and on his own, and they've got enough problems in their relationship. I mean, I don't don't want to be her friend, but it's not because of what her son did. She didn't make him do that. Do you still get calls from her? Not really. She's She's on my Facebook. I asked my mother what she thought when she first learned what Matthew had done to me. I thought he's he's dangerous. Um, to himself and others. And then but and here's the thing, and I think this goes along with your not calling the police. I still thought what a tortured tortured young man and I just thought he but he carried that that really 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 damaged child with him so in this even in that moment where I was so hurting for what you went through and so angry for how he as you described it manipulated people against you and did all the classic things furious angry so relieved that you had stood up and said something. I was thinking, God, that poor, ruined baby, child. My own mother's strongest emotional response when she learned what he had done to me was extreme pity for Matthew. And the thing is, I get it. My mother was right. A big part of the reason I didn't tell anyone right away was that I wanted to protect Matthew. I didn't want him to lose all his friends. But perhaps it is worth meditating on a moment. I tell my friends and loved ones that I was sexually assaulted, and the result is a surge of pity for the perpetrator, an instinct to protect the perpetrator, and really not much thought at all about me. We've heard a fair amount about victim-blaming in the news and on social media. And if we think about it the way it is normally expressed, I'd say I escaped it. No one suggested it was my fault the assault occurred, and what I was wearing and how much I'd had to drink were never questioned. But I came to wonder if people were actually blaming me in that way, but just not saying so. Here's my mother again. You had a an experience with sexual assault as mm-hmm. well. Did you tell anyone? Mm-mm. No one? I was ashamed of myself. I was stupid. I mean, I I accepted from a stranger the use of his apartment. He said he would stay with somebody else. And, and I was with both guys. And then we all went out to eat. So do you realize you... Just blame myself. Yourself. It's Again. been many years since that happened, and you still blame, blame yourself. Myself. Well, he's the most to blame. 
but I was. Yeah, you're right. But you know, on a level, I do. I was. I was stupid. If a man who you're... you're now, what I should have done is when he said, I'll walk you home, I should have said, but I didn't know the way because <laughs> we'd been out and eating and everything in the end. Mom, mm-hmm. there is nothing you should have done. The man offered you his apartment. He said he was going to stay with his friends. Mm-hmm. He... You b- believed in the kindness of strangers. Yeah, but we were flirting. He bought me a drink. What does that matter? He showed me his apartment where everything was, and we were sitting. And then he was saying, American men don't know how to kiss. Let me show you. And I let him. And then I said, eh, really and truly, they're, they're pretty good. And, you know, I think you should go now. And then it just grew from there, and it was, it was rape. That is exactly and what I they still didn't is, scream. Mom. I was trying yeah. to scream, and he said, "No, no, my neighbor's a liar." And you know what? I I didn't scream. I was going, "Stop it! Stop it!" So that his neighbors wouldn't hear. I was thinking how terrible for them to hear and know that I'm here. And... Yeah, that was pretty bad. You still blame yourself. You did nothing wrong. Just being in a room alone with someone is not a, a, a mm-hmm. is not a invitation. Flirting with someone does not mean they can rape you. Yeah. Kissing them still does not me- mean they're allowed to rape you. And I think you're right. It, absolutely, you're right. It's it's not just you. That happens. To, to women over and over and over again. And the fact that you were screaming quietly not to wake up the neighbors, I mean, that just shows how deeply it's ingrained in us. I mean... Like, do you feel that? Do you feel that yes. there's something there that's... Yeah, yeah, I do, I do, I do. I do. You know, um, my feelings about this particular story seem to come in waves. I mean, first, I feel sorrow that this woman went through this. And then there's a kind of an admiration for the kind of guts that it must have taken for her to sit down with all these people that she loved, ask some very tough, very awkward questions and record all of it. And then there's this recognition that um, this isn't just Janie's story, right? That's why we're listening to it. This is an echo of generations of stories from at least hundreds of thousands of women. I mean, this story is what we mean when we use the phrase rape culture. And rape culture, for many people, meaning the social acceptance of rape and sexual assault. There's this sense... Everybody thinks it's bad, but, you know, it's going to happen, right? We don't look at other serious crimes in that way. Armed robbery. We're going to go out and get the guy and lock him up. Isn't rape more serious than armed robbery in terms of the harm that it does to somebody? Even like graffiti. Right. 
we treat more seriously. This kind of sense of, well, of course it's bad, but uh, let's not wreck the perpetrator's life over it. I spoke with Kate Mann via Skype. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and I'm also a writer. To put it lightly, she wrote a recent book that's been called Brilliant and Indispensable. It's called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. And in that book, Kate Mann coins the term empathy. So she's given a name to this exact phenomenon, I think, that Janie is interrogating. This reflex to extend care and sympathy to the male perpetrator, often more sympathy than we give to his female victim. You know, this was just a small part of her Down Girl book, but Kate Mann has said publicly that empathy will be the subject of her next book because it resonated so loudly with so many people, especially women, of course. I summarized Janie's story for Kate Mann. Here's what she said. It's so common. I mean, this is what really shocks me. This is what got me interested in all of this stuff in a way, is that you're told this lie as a woman that if something awful happens to you, people will care. And the reality is, if it's a white guy and, you know, or a golden boy, someone who people like and it's not an occasion for opportunistic racism, say, they won't do a fucking thing doesn't surprise me in the least. I'm really glad that she highlighted whiteness because race does matter here. I mean, as it does in so many things. The benefits of empathy, they just don't extend to men of color in anything like the same way that they extend to white men. We've talked about this elsewhere in the series. In fact, it can go exactly the opposite way. An allegation of sexual assault by a black man, especially against a white woman, has often meant a quick death sentence in our history. Yeah, but when it comes to white dude perpetrators, we've already heard other examples of empathy in our series. Those cops in Montgomery who raped Gertrude Perkins in part four. Or in part five, Kelly Lanspa, the tech professional. Her boss gropes her on a plane, and then when she tells another boss, who's also a man, he brushes it off. He says he likes this guy, the groper. He's so much fun, as if that somehow makes it go away. That makes it not important. Yeah, we've got to keep him around. I like him. He's fun to have a beer with. Eh, So he gropes a few women. And it usually does settle it, right? It too often does. So the question is, why empathy? And it's not hard to see why men, especially white men, would extend empathy to each other, at least to have an incentive to do that. We're we're all in the club. And, And it's to my advantage to let the other guy off the hook now because that means I'll get a free pass when I need it, right? But why would lots of women have this impulse too? That's part of what Janie wanted to know in having these conversations with her friends. And don't forget that she herself, Janie, felt concerned about Matthew and wanted to protect him, even though he'd sexually molested her. So Janie's not trying to call out her friends as somehow bad friends, bad people. She's not trying to criticize her mother. She wanted to examine this tendency that is in so many of us and and somehow try to understand it. That's exactly what Kate Mann tries to do in her book. And she says it starts with the fundamentally different roles that patriarchal cultures assign to men and women, boys and girls. Traditionally, men get to be, (laughs) to do stuff. While, of course, women's traditional role is to serve men, to support 
and nurture us while we go out there and be all that we can be. But you know, there's, a, there's an important distinction in Kate Mann's thinking here. She does not agree with the notion that's often expressed by many feminists, that men see women as less than fully human. Right. Kate doesn't agree with that. She thinks you men get that women are human, right? You understand. I mean, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do. Would you agree that most men do? Well, I think Kate Mann makes a really interesting argument. Um, and she says, so to put it in literal terms, she points out that straight men, at least, want to have sex with women. <laughs> and most of us are not so interested in sex with non-human species. Fair. So that's evidence, at least at the literal level, that, that men understand that women are human. But, you know, she makes a more nuanced, and I think it, it, it becomes a more uh, subtle argument. You know, it does often seem that men either don't recognize that women have the same rich, complicated mental and emotional lives that men do. Or don't care. <laughs> or right? just don't care. <laughs> but then why would that be true? Um, so Kate Mann says, thanks to our patriarchal culture, all of us, men and women, have been trained to see women as a particular kind of human. Yes. Right? A human that is here to care for you men and boys and give stuff to you. So I think of the contrast more as between human beings and human givers, where women are the givers of feminine coded goods like, um, you know, pleasure nurture, sustenance, um, you know, children for that matter. Labor of an emotional kind is a big part of this too. So that brings us to Kate Mann's theory of misogyny. She argues it's not hatred of women in some straightforward, simplistic way. And that makes perfect sense to me. A lot of the most misogynistic men also love women and very often treat the women in their lives quite well uh, until those women get out of line, right? Because right. when they contradict the man or they stop giving the man all those feminine coded goods that Kate Mann is talking about, the things that man expects from her, at that point, the man might lash out with violence, sometimes sexual or otherwise, but he needs to bring her back in line. That is misogyny in Kate Mann's view. Not a general dislike of women, but instead it's, she calls it the punishment arm, the enforcement arm of patriarchy. Sexism is the theory, the ideology that says men are this way and women are that way. That ideology is designed to keep people playing their assigned gender roles. But if sexism stops working and a woman gets out of line, misogyny brings the punishment. It tries to smack the woman back into her place. So let's bring this back to the concept of empathy, because all of us of every gender are so deeply conditioned to see these gender roles as normal and natural and good. We tend to go easy on men when they punish women for not playing by the patriarchal rules. Right. We might say it's bad that that guy did that thing, but... It's understandable in the end, considering how that woman disappointed the poor guy. And also the man and his precious potential. That's what really matters in the end. So when a woman does what Janie did 
and calls out a man and says, wait a minute, everybody wanted to make sure Matthew was okay, and in the process erased me and the damage done to me, she was being assertive. Yeah. It was a plea from a woman to put herself and her pain at the center of the story. And that is not something that women are supposed to do, not in a patriarchal system. Men always have to be at the center of every story. So Kate Mann says that's where the backlash comes in against a woman in Janie's situation. And I say backlash, but that could just take the form of indifference, like Janie experienced from some of her friends, or criticism. Here's one more moment from Janie's recordings, something her friend Nicole said to her as they were looking back on the ways Janie had disclosed Matthew's assault. I mean, okay, look, when you posted the Facebook thing, I felt the Facebook post was inappropriate to post to a public situation. And I, you know, I didn't really know how to react to that. I didn't feel like, I felt it was handled not in a good way at that point. Where I don't know how you handle something like that, you know, looking back. I think my first what is the best way to handle something like that? And the answer, if you consider empathy and rape culture, is... There is no right way. A woman will always be criticized for the way she speaks up against her perpetrator. Why didn't she do it right away? Why didn't she call the cops? And then when she does find the courage to speak up, six months later, or even 30 years later, then she's being selfish. She's creating a mess for other people over something that happened way too long ago to care about. Yeah, she's being selfish. Yeah. Because with that very act of claiming victim status, a woman is asserting her own interests, and women just aren't supposed to do that. Here's Kate Mann again. She effectively becomes the villain, and he effectively becomes the victim of his own crime. I mean, that's how twisted, that's how morally perverse this can get if there's this antecedent commitment to upholding his good name, his good guy's status, his reputation, rather than, you know, flipping the inference and saying, I thought he was the good guy, but apparently not. We see this again and again. He's a good guy, people say. Brett Kavanaugh, Louis C.K., Al Franken, and a thousand other men accused of abusing their power at the expense of women. He's a good guy. That's the primary fact, right? It's something that we all need to know. And that claim just overwhelms, it overshadows everything, including literal, tangible evidence that he is not a good guy. And it overwhelms any concern about the woman that the so-called good guy has victimized. Yeah. She couldn't be telling the truth because he's a good guy. Right. And even if she is telling the truth, well, he's a good guy, so we shouldn't wreck his golden future just because he made a mistake or two. Boys will be boys, after all. Hey, look, I'm, I'm the mother of a son. I know what it means to love a young man in spite of his imperfections, sometimes because of his imperfections. I understand worrying about his future and wanting to protect him. Empathy, part of it anyway, comes, I think, from a good place, right? A place of love. Kate Mann calls it a pro-social impulse as opposed to an anti-social one. The problem is that we extend this concern and empathy to boys and men at the expense of women. And it stops us from holding men accountable 
when they do real harm. And if I could change one thing about the world, well, I would change a lot of things about the world. But the idea that, yeah, a white, privileged man, cis, hat, non-disabled, and usually young and a golden boy, the idea that he can do no wrong, really, if I could change that, not necessarily to punish him, but just to recognize what moral harms are done and to make them, you know, less prevalent. Like, yeah, if I was queen of the world, that's what I would, that's what I would do. Thanks to Kate Mann and to Janie Williams for sharing her story with us. If you'd like to hear more of her story and the conversations she had with friends, check out her podcast, This Happened. It's available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Next time, Shades of Manhood. How in a racist society, masculinity is coded differently for people of different races and ethnicities. And what that means for, say, Asian and African American men. Music by Alex Weston and by Evgeny and Sasha Galperine. Music and production help from Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. The communications team at CDS is headed by Liz Phillips. Whitney Baker manages our website. Mara Guevara does the episode art. The Men logo is by Harper Bewin. Follow Scene on Radio on Facebook and on Twitter at Scene on Radio. I'm at Celeste Headley. That's H-E-A-D-L-E-E. The website is sceneonradio.org. The show comes from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and PRX. The first time I listened to this episode, I was going for a run Mm -hmm. and I just stopped running. And I just stood like on a corner in my neighborhood and listened to the whole episode. Mm. It just it literally stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. I mean, it hits hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. for sure. Thank you again to Scene on Radio for sharing that episode with us. And please make sure you listen to their whole series. It's called Men. It's wonderful and a great companion listen or like a sister show to our podcast. For sure. Yeah. And thank you also to Janie Williams of This Happened podcast for sharing your story. And one more time, thank you so much, John B. Wynn and Celeste Hadley. Um, See you soon. Bye, y'all.